Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 15, 2 Kings chapter 11. So as we continue our study of 2 Kings 11 today, we're going to paint with a few very broad brush strokes and also with some very fine detail. And we begin by finding that Athaliah, the equally wicked daughter of the recently and violently killed Queen Jezebel, realized <coughs> that her moment of opportunity had arrived and she decided to seize upon it. Rather than do what might be expected of any normal mother, and that Athalia would thus bitterly mourn over the recent death of her son Ahijah, king of Judah, her response was to go on a killing rampage of all remaining members of her own family. At least any who could claim some legitimate right to the throne of Judah. Now to be clear, this primarily meant males, since they were the only ones entitled to be kings. The females were generally safe from her homicidal intentions. Now since many of the royal family also carried King David's bloodline in them, then wiping out um, this, this uh, royalty, including her own flesh and blood, including grandchildren, would also serve to bring a resounding end to David's dynasty. And it would prove that Jehovah's ability to follow through with his promises, especially that David would have a ruling remnant forever, well, that could be undone with some clever planning of a Baal worshiper. Now recall that while Athaliah's heritage was a mix of the pagan Jezebel's genes with those of her father Ahav, who was a member of the northern Israelite tribes, the father of Athaliah's son was Yehoram. He was a descendant of King David. So Ahaziah was a legitimate member of David's dynasty, which means that so were all of his biological sons. Essentially, from Athaliah's point of view, if she was going to wipe out David's dynasty so that she could replace it with her mother and father's dynasty, represented by herself, then all of her own children and grandchildren would have to be disposed of. This reality did not seem to deter her, but rather it merely charted out the only possible path to her goal, the illegitimate rise to the throne of Judah. It worked, almost. Fortunately, there were other clever women in the palace, besides Athaliah women devoted to the God of Israel. And so Akazah's sister, Yehosheva, immediately understood what Athaliah was up to and why. So she took her little nephew, the infant son of Akazah, and she rushed to hide him before Athaliah's servants could kill him. 
little Yoash, no more than a few months old, was suddenly the sole survivor of King David's ruling family line. Verse 4 tells us she hid him away for six years. And all during this time, Athaliah was the de facto queen of Judah. Now there's no evidence she was ever coronated as queen. Rather, she used her army and those in the royal court who didn't want to lose their lofty positions to keep her in power. In fact, there's no record of her being called a queen. She is not even recorded among the various lists of rulers of Israel and Judah. <clears throat> and other than the fact that we know what happened, and we see her story here in Second Kings, it's as though she never existed. So let's reread all of chapter 11 of Second Kings because there's a great deal of information to digest in it. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, that would be page 414, 414. 2 Kings chapter 11. <clears throat> when Athaliah, the mother of Ahijah, saw that her son was dead, she set about destroying the entire royal family. But Yosheva, the daughter of King Yoram, sister of Ahijah, took Yoash, the son of Ahijah, and stole him away from among the princes who were being slaughtered. She took him and his nurse, sequestered them in a bedroom, hid them from Athaliah so that he wasn't killed. He remained hidden with his nurse in the house of Adonai for six years, and during this time Athaliah ruled the land. In the seventh year, Yehoiada summoned the captains of hundred land platoons of both the Kari and the guard. And he brought them into the house of Adonai and made an agreement with them and had them swear it in the house of Adonai. And then he showed them the king's son and gave them this instruction. Here's what you are to do. Of you who come to duty on Shabbat, a third guards the royal palace. A third is at the sewer gate and a third is at the gate behind the guards. The first third is to continue guarding the palace and serve as a barrier, while the other two groups of you who come on duty on Shabbat will guard the house of Adonai where the king is. You are to surround the king, each man with his weapons in his hand. Anyone who penetrates the ranks is to be killed. Stay with the king whenever he leaves or enters. The captain over the hundreds did exactly as Jehoiada the Kohen ordered. Each took his men those coming on duty on Shabbat, those going off duty on Shabbat, and came to Yehoiada uh, the Kohen, the high priest. The Kohen issued to the captains of the hundreds the spears and shields that had been King David's and were kept in the house of Adonai. The guards then took their positions, each man with his weapons in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, all along the altar, alongside the exterior of the house and around the king. Then he brought out the king's son. He crowned him, gave him a copy of the testimony, and thus made him king. They anointed him, clapped their hands, and shouted, Long live the king! And when Athaliah heard the shouting of the guard and the people, she entered the house of Adonai where the people were. She looked and saw the king standing there on the platform in keeping with the rule, with the leaders and the trumpets next to the king. All the people of the land were celebrating, blowing the trumpets, and at this Athaliah tore her clothes. She cried out, Treason! Treason! 
Yehoiada, the Kohen, ordered the captains of the hundreds, the army officers, escort her out past the ranks, but anyone who follows her killed with the sword. For the priest had said, she must not be put to death in the house of Adonai. So they took her by force. They led her through the horse's entry to the royal palace, and there she was put to death. <clears throat> Yehoiada made a covenant between Adonai, the king, and the people that they would be Adonai's people and, be, and a covenant between the king and the people. And then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and struck and broke it down. They completely smashed its altars and images and killed Matan, the priest of Baal, in front of the altars. Next, the Kohen appointed officers over the house of Adonai. He took the captains of hundreds, the Kari, the guards, all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of Adonai, going by way of the gate of the guards to the royal palace. There, they sat, there he sat on the throne of the kings, and all the people of the land celebrated at last. The city was quiet. That is how they killed Athalia with the sword at the royal palace. <clears throat> Athalia reigned over Judah from 842 to 836 BC. And in her seventh year of rule, Jehoiada, Joyada in most Bibles, the high priest of Solomon's temple took steps to remedy this untenable situation. Now apparently, Yehosheva had either taken the high priest into her confidence or perhaps even originally acted upon his instruction to steal away baby Joash to safety since she had access to the royal palace. The latter is more probable since as it turns out Yehosheba was married to Yehoyada. And even more, verse 3 says that the infant was kept hidden in the bait Yehoveh, meaning the house of Yehoveh. In other words, the temple. Now this doesn't mean the sanctuary itself, but rather one of the complex of many rooms that was attached to and surrounded the Holy of Holies in the Holy Place. Okay, it seems that the Levite priesthood was still very powerful and thriving at this time, despite Athalia and her determination to make Judah a Baal-worshipping kingdom. Now the priesthood was still the keeper and teacher of the law and the Torah. They were still counted on by the people of Judah as central to their daily lives, and they were still the guardian of Israel's Yehovah religion as given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now the two Hebrew names that we find at this point in our narrative allow me an excuse to give you a brief insight into Hebrew names that invoke the divine some points that you might not have yet noticed. Now, please pay close attention because this is especially important for those of us who are part of the Hebrew Roots movement in Christianity. It also ought to be important for you Christian Bible scholars that are listening. We see a number of names in Hebrew that begin with the Hebrew letters yud Hey and are vocalized usually as Yeho as in Yeho Sheva, Yeho Yada, like in 2 Kings 11. See, Yeho is a shortened form of God's formal name, Yeho Ve. 
And all Hebrew scholars agree with this. Thus, Yehosheva means Yehoveh has vowed. Yehoyada means Yehoveh is aware or Yehoveh knows. Now notice that Yeho is two syllables. Now, at times, it can sound like a very extended single syllable, almost like a syllable and a half. Right. But on the other hand, when a Hebrew word begins only with a yud, or at times adds a very soft hey, and is vocalized ye or ya, one very abrupt syllable, then the word is God, not Yehovah. Thus, for instance, Moses' sidekick's name, Joshua, is in Hebrew, Yehoshua. Yehoshua. It means Yehovah saves. It does not mean God saves. A variant of that name is Yeshua. Sometimes thought to sound like Yahshua, but I don't think that's correct. That name means God saves, not Yehovah saves. So we have a subtle but important difference in the meaning of these names. One uses the generic word for the Lord of Heaven, God, and the other uses the specific formal name for the Lord of Heaven, Yehovah, yud heh now I tell you this <clears throat> because if you're grasping it, it helps you to understand the biblical meaning behind these names that often invoke the God of Israel. But also because more than a few take me to task for vocalizing God's name as Yehovah and not the more accepted Yahweh. But what I just explained gives you the reason why there is disagreement over exactly how to pronounce God's formal name that is spelled yud Hey vav Hey. Do we vocalize it like Yehoyada and Yehoshua, Joshua, and thus say the Lord's name is Yehovah, or do we vocalize it like in Yeshua or Yah and say Yehweh or Yahweh? See, my personal research convinces me that Yehovah easily makes the most sense grammatically and historically, and it even explains why the earliest Greek and then English, much later English translation of his name is Jehovah, not Jave, or something like that. See, in other words, the oldest translations from Hebrew to Greek seem to explain that God's formal name consisted of three syllables, however we wish to pronounce them. Not two. Just like in the Hebrew. When you take any name <clears throat> that begins with the vocalization of Yeho, like in our two names in our King's lesson, there has to be then at least three syllables in order to complete a name that begins with two. In the end, however, there's no reason for this disagreement over the right way to pronounce God's name to be divisive, since there is no way to prove it. And in fact, it may turn out that none of these ways are correct. So here in Torah class, 
whether you or I choose to say Yahweh, 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 Yehovah, Jehovah, it's all perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable. Just as it is to say Yeshua, Yahshua, or Jesus. Transliterating ancient Hebrew words and names are very problematic to begin with. And there is no such thing as a single surviving Hebrew dialect that can claim to be the original since the Hebrew language evolved greatly from the time of Moses to the time of Christ. And it has continued to evolve just as all human languages do. Alright, let's get back to our story. Joash is now about seven years old. Notice the number seven here. The ideal divine number that indicates the Lord's involvement. And while symbolic, the timeline shows the number seven in this case to be precise as well. And interestingly, as in our little detour regarding Hebrew names, there is also disagreement over the meaning of Joash's name. In Hebrew, <clears throat> it is either Yoash or it's Yehoash. In the first case, his name means given by God. In the second case, the name means given by Yehovah. The name does begin as it is written with yud Hey. So very likely, the latter rather than the former is correct. And his name is invoking God's formal name, Yehovah. We can't be certain of it. Well, the child didn't remain hidden as a shut-in for all of those years. We hear of no concern by Athalia that any remnant of David's dynasty still lived. And unlike her detail-oriented mother, Jezebel, Athalia apparently never missed her grandson, Joash, and merely assumed he was among the dead. Rather, in a short time, he would have lived in plain sight and he would have masqueraded as one of the Levite children. That would have been rather easy to accomplish since this child wouldn't have had any memory to think of himself otherwise and no one else would have known what he looked like when he lived in the palace since he had disappeared as a tiny infant and no one but his wet nurse had had, had, had much contact with him. <clears throat> now we're told in verse 4 that apparently Yehoiada and Yehosheva had done a good job of keeping Yoash's identity a secret. So when the time was ripe the high priest called for the leaders of the people and some soldiers and guards to, to, to come to him so that he could now reveal that indeed the dynasty of David wasn't extinct after all. It was the soldiers who were called first. And they are given the designation of Kari and Ratzim. And the Kari were primarily foreign bodyguards. They were the equivalent of the earlier group of Philistines that David employed as his own personal bodyguards. The Ratzim are a different group than the Kari. Ratzim 
better translates as runners rather than guards. They probably were used more as messengers who were trained to fight since messengers often encountered bandits and foreign enemies. Now, obviously, these five groups of 100 each were loyal to the Davidic dynasty. And since the high priest sought to protect that dynasty, even if everyone thought it was now extinct, he was the de facto leader of that contingency. Now, Yehoiada swore them to allegiance at the temple, invoking God's name. It must have been a very powerful, very exciting ceremony that affected those men deeply because upon their vow of allegiance, the high priest revealed that God had sealed away and protected a child of the house of David and it was time to put him on the throne. It was time for Judah to resume being ruled by a member of King David's dynasty. Little Joash stood before them as the Davidic king-in-waiting, and I can't even imagine the range of emotions that erupted within this crowd of people. At this point, the high priest, Yehoiada, began issuing instructions to those in attendance. But what we get is just part of the story. Several other details are added in 2 Chronicles chapter 23. I'm going to read you just a short portion of it. 2 Chronicles uh, 23 verses 1 through 3. In the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and he formed a conspiracy with certain captains of hundred-man platoons. Azariah, the son of Yerucham, Yishmael, the son of Yehokanan, uh, Azariah, the son of Obed, Maaseyuau, the son of Adayau, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. They canvassed Judah. They gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah together with the clan heads of Israel and they came to Jerusalem. The whole assembly made an agreement with the king in the house of David. Jehoiada addressed them, Here, the king's son will reign, as Adonai said in regard to the descendants of David. So here we get the names of the captains of the five units of the Kari, each consisting of the standard 100-man platoon. And even though these units consisted mostly of foreigners, we see nothing but Hebrew names as the leaders, meaning Israelites, were in charge. And no doubt that was to help assure allegiance to Israel. They were sent throughout Judah to secure the loyalty of the important clans and families and of the Levites. They were all then to come to Jerusalem to attend a holy convocation. Well, this convocation was naturally held at the temple, led by Jehoiada, and it carried immense gravitas due to this intensely holy place it was held and the very nature of its purpose, which was to reestablish the throne of David after a nearly seven-year absence. The group was ready to put their lives and those of their families, their personal wealth, all of it on the line in order to uphold God's commandments. They were prepared to fight to revive the house of David.
Thus we have the priesthood, the military, and the civilian leadership all working together for this dangerous undertaking against Athalia. And the reality is that there was no practical way for Joash to claim the throne unless the military was on board. In verses 5 through 8, we get a rather detailed explanation of what's to happen next to dethrone Athalia and to ensconce Joash. Now we're not going to go through it step by step as only the overall strategy is important for us. The plan revolved around what the Bible in earlier and later chapters will call the courses of Levites and priests who serve shifts at the temple. See, long ago, Samuel and David had organized the Levites and the priests into shifts, into courses, and they would change shifts. They would always, this would always occur on Shabbat. Thus, for a short time, on every Shabbat, double the number of Levites would be present on the temple grounds as one shift was in the process of replacing the other one. See, this was the ideal time to pull off a coup because the royalty would normally be at ease, resting at their palace, and because the many extra personnel gathered at the temple would seem normal. It wouldn't raise suspicion or alarm. It's not unlike the reason that the Japanese decided to attack Pearl Harbor on a Sunday. Psychologically, people just don't expect things to happen on a day that's holy to them. And further, they understood that our military forces on that day tend to be less alert, more relaxed, with only a skeleton crew on watch, so that everybody else can have the day to themselves and go to church or synagogue services. Bottom line, this coup was set to happen on a Shabbat. Now the idea was also that there would be sufficient manpower available to deal with Athalia's loyal bodyguard if it became necessary and to keep this new king safe. So after some detailed plans about which course of Levites and which platoon of soldiers would be, would be stationed where, Yehoiada makes it clear what their ultimate goal is. Protect the child king at all costs with their very lives. Now, I can't stress enough that the high priest and all those who had come to the temple understood the gravity of this situation. See, Joash was the sole survivor of the house of David. If the coup failed, Athaliah wouldn't hesitate to kill Joash, and this would utterly end the Davidic dynasty for all time. I'm sure that on the one hand, the faithful were reminded by Jehoiada of God's promise that there would always be a survivor of the house of David and Yoash was it. On the other hand, there was but one. And his death meant extinction. And he was about to be placed in the greatest danger from which there was no backing down once it started. How could anyone not have doubts and fears at a moment like this? Was Yehoiada wrong to do such a risky and bold thing 
that had the most devastating long-term consequences if he was wrong? Have we heard of a direct oracle from God with instructions to attempt this coup? We don't even hear a hint of Yehoiada consulting the Urim and Tumim for God's guidance, although perhaps that's a given, considering who he was, and, and the Lord didn't think it was necessary for that to be recorded for us. Was now really the best time to attempt this? When the, when the new king would only be the equivalent age and maturity of a first grader in Western society. See, I really doubt that this was necessarily the optimum time or conditions. Nor was it necessarily in the Lord's perfect will or timing. Nor did it come about in the exact way that the Lord would have it, especially since it was on Shabbat, which certainly seems good from a human strategic standpoint, maybe not so good from a spiritual standpoint. But maybe maybe there's a lesson here for us. Doing the Lord's general will in our lives usually isn't a precisely discernible thing. Complete with spiritual purity or maturity that includes all the unmistakable signs from God, all the supernatural urgings, a consensus from our believing friends and family, nor a guarantee of success, all things we might hope for. There are no guarantees of success. Most of the time, we are left to our knowledge of the Lord's written principles and commandments occurring under circumstances that are somehow invisibly orchestrated by God's providence and thus it's unknown to us, not necessarily even sensed by us. And typically it's all accompanied with a great deal of doubts and anxieties that are only slightly or momentarily soothed when bathed in prayer. Perhaps this is where heart motive and purity of intention matters most when our course of action plays out, when it seems as though it would be wrong not to do what we seem so led to do, but at the same time we just can't put a finger on that moment when we just knew that God spoke to us and told us to proceed. My father once told me that his constant prayer was, God, help me. And if I'm wrong, help me more. (laughs) Perhaps this is where God's immeasurable grace plays its largest role in our lives. Eclipsed only by the grace of our salvation and Messiah. Because if we wait for perfection of circumstance, unmistakable timing, and the peaceful release from all of our doubts and fears, we might remain frozen in place forever. And we'll never accomplish that which God set us on this planet to do for His people and for His kingdom. I can't think of anything sadder 
or of a greater personal failure than for a worshiper of the God of Israel to do that. Well, verse 10 speaks of the very moment when the arsenal of spears and shields that King David had persuaded the priests of his day to be stored at the temple would finally serve their heretofore unknown purpose. These weapons had been captured from foreign enemies by David's troops and not wanting to profit from them, he gave them to the temple. They had been consecrated for a holy purpose. And so one has to ask if what they were about to be used for was appropriate. Was reestablishing the house of David on the throne of Judah, was that a holy enough purpose? Oh, I think yes, it was. And as the tension rose, and as each unit of soldiers and Levites went to their assigned posts, Yehoiada brought the royally robed Joash out into the open for the first time and he laid the crown of Judah upon that tiny head. A copy of the Torah was placed into the, to his hands to fulfill God's commandment in Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20 it says this, when he has come to occupy the throne of his kingdom, he is to write a copy of this Torah for himself in a scroll from the one the Kohanim and the Levites use. It is to remain with him. He is to read in it every day as long as he lives so that he will learn to fear Adonai his God and keep all the words of this Torah and these laws and obey them so that he will not think he is better than his kinsmen, so that he will not turn aside either to the right or the left from the mitzvah, from the command. In this way he will prolong his own reign and that of his own children in Israel. <clears throat> well, the secret was out. It didn't take long for the people inside Athaliah's palace, whose courtyard led directly into the courtyard of the temple, to know something big was going on. And the citizens of Judah couldn't contain themselves any longer as the throngs started shouting, Long live the king! And they clapped and they blew horns and they banged on drums that attracted lots of curious onlookers who had no idea what was going on until that moment. However, Athalia's reaction was somewhat different. <clears throat> As she and her entourage approached the temple and she saw that young boy, robed in purple, scepter in hand, a crown on his head, her shock and disbelief turned to outrage as she shouted, Treason! The high priest, though, well, he held all the cards. The military was on his side as were the people and the people's leaders. Everybody had had enough of Athalia. And from a human's point of view, Yehoiada had played his hand perfectly. He didn't even have to send soldiers to fight to extract Athalia from her heavily defended palace, where there would have been a great deal of loss of life on both sides. Instead, she virtually and unwittingly presented herself to the rebels. Now remembering that A, this was hallowed temple grounds, and B, this was Shabbat, 
and see he was the high priest and could be nowhere near death, Jehoiada uh, ordered that Athaliah be taken, led outside the city walls through a gate called the Gate of the Horses, <clears throat> and there she was quickly executed. No trial, no opportunity for mercy, no fanfare, only death for the daughter of Jezebel. And I say justice was done. The era of Ahav and Jezebel was finally over. But nearly at the cost of the entire house of David. A new covenant was made between the high priest and the people. <clears throat> Likely it was merely a reaffirmation of the covenant of Moses as had been done in the mountains of Moab just before Israel's entry into the promised land then again at Mount Abal and uh, Gerizim immediately after Israel crossed the Jordan River. Religious fervor spread throughout the land as word reached the population of Judah that Athaliah was dead and David's descendant was on the throne. And thousands of people came to Jerusalem and, 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 and the surrounding areas <clears throat> to tear down every last vestige of Baal worship. They took Baal's high priest Matan. They killed him by Baal's altar. Well next, the high priest appointed officers to go and protect the temple from the many shocked and angry Baal worshippers who were sure to seek vengeance. And a large contingency was then used in the procession to bring this young king from the temple to the palace, his new home. You know, <clears throat> as a grandfather, I can't help but wonder about the emotional and mental condition of this seven-year-old child who now supported the weight and hopes of a kingdom upon those slight shoulders. Did he have any understanding of what had just happened to him? Not only that, but from a spiritual standpoint, he was several years away from the age of accountability. I doubt he could read that Torah scroll that was handed to him by the high priest. And even if he could, what could he possibly take from it? What value did the vows to God actually have that he had spoken as he accepted that crown of Judah before the cheers of the thousands? Of this I can't say with any certainty. But I think we can look to another somewhat similar situation with another very young boy who took on far more earthly and spiritual responsibility than he had a right to. That child's name was Samuel. And what we can learn from Samuel is that a young child can instinctively know more about the Lord than his mind can consciously discern. A child can know God. He can have, he or she can have a relationship with God in a very intimate way. In fact, we see in Samuel that a child can make a commitment to God 
that can lead to a lifetime of service, even if from a human perspective it hardly seems possible or maybe even fair. No doubt Joash was but a figure, figurehead king for his first few years but an important figurehead nonetheless. And his health and welfare would have been paramount since until he was old enough to marry and father children, he would remain as the sole living member of the house of David. It was most fortunate that Yehoiada was a high priest who possessed great faith and merit. He no doubt was the power behind the throne and he was the real decision maker and this is reflected in what happened in Judah for the next many years as Judah pulled back from the brink of God's wrath because of a newfound zeal for his Torah. Could America, even the rest of the world today, be pulled back from the brink if we could but find a newfound zeal for God's Torah that would, I'm convinced, lead us to a newfound depth of spiritual understanding for all of God's Word, which would then lead us to rediscover our first love for Yeshua, Jesus the Christ. Oh, how I pray that's the case, because I just don't see any other hope for mankind than that.